Amen. 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 Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I told uh, Pastor Chris, just make stuff up. When you introduce me, just make stuff up. If you don't know it, just make it up. So he did. Um, so, um, and he wasn't really that far off, to be honest. Um, an Englishman, whether I'm little or not, is an entirely different issue, I suppose. Um, but uh, I live in New Zealand. So I'm a dual citizen, I have two passports. But I, my wife and I haven't lived in England since 1998. We left, uh, in 1998 we left England and we moved to southern Austria with our children, who were one and a half and like four and a half, to work with Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Europe, the, the only one that they had in Europe at that point in time. And we were there in Austria for four years. Then we moved to Central Eastern Europe. We moved to Hungary and we lived in Hungary for eight, nearly ten years. Um, and then we moved to New Zealand and we started Calvary Chapel's Bible College in this area of the world about 10 years ago. So that's, that's kind of what we do. Kids now are like 23 and 26. Um, the students are still 18 and I'm now 57. I don't know what happened with that. They're still the same age and I get older. So you should take pity on me. One, because I'm an Englishman and a Kiwi. But also, and I'm little apparently, uh, but also I live with 30 teenagers. Now, I, 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 need, I clearly need counselling and help. So maybe this should be an animal pity at least. But anyway, that's me. Um, it's about 20 years since I had a real job. And in those days when I had a real job, I handled, I did a lot, of, I was involved in a lot of legal work. Um, but since then, I've been pastoring and working in the Bible College. So that's kind of me. That sets the, the record straight, shall we say. Um, I want to read to you, before we go into Matthew, from Luke. The, the guys had a, had a difficult time this morning. Um, the soundboard wouldn't work, the guitar strings broke, everything was against them, it would seem, in that sense. But we, we worshipped and we praised. And in the flow of the songs, there was a lovely sense of God does real things. You know, the Bible's full of theology. And, and that's not a thing to be frightened of. But the Bible isn't primarily about theology. It's about relationship. And God touches, changes lives. He is unstoppable. And in, and in the words of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is not a tame lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Unstoppable, unquenchable. There is nothing, there is no one, like him. And so we have the right and the expectation, and we should have, that when we encounter him, we get changed. In Luke chapter 4, there's a point where Jesus is in the synagogue and they give him a scroll from the book of Isaiah. And you're reading in Luke um, 4. Verse sort of 17, 18, it says this. We got some glasses here. It's the privilege of being older. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to send me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recoverance of a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he sat down and everybody's eyes were on him. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, wherever Messiah is, 
That's what Messiah does. He breaks chains. He sets people free. He gives sight to the blind. The gospel is preached to the poor. Wherever Jesus is, there's a re real change in connectivity and impact on lives. So today, we're going to be in Matthew 6. And there's a quote. I want to start with a quote from... Julius Caesar said this, and Caesar was a bit of a crazy person, but he said this, and it makes a lot of sense. He said, the fear of the future and the regret of the past are the twin enemies of the soul. The fear of the future and the regret of the past are the twin enemies of the soul. And isn't that true? That so many of our fears and our worries relate to what might happen or what has happened. You know, what if, what if the All Blacks continue to win? <laughs> what if England, heaven forbid, should actually win? I mean, these are terrible ideas, aren't they? Terrible potentials. You know, oh, what if I lose my job? What if my health deteriorates? The what if, the fear of the future, impacts our heart. And then you look back, and sometimes you look back with great, with great expectation and joy and think, oh, that was fantastic. But sometimes you look back and you go, I just wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish that had happened. I wish I hadn't moved. And, and both the future and the past so often impact our souls. And for the believer, we're not... Um, We're not isolated from worry, anxiety, and difficulty. In fact, as a believer, you often have more. Because often you're worried about other people as well as yourself. Paul speaks all the time of, you know, the worry concerned with being involved in the church and all the souls under his care. So this morning, I want to share from Matthew 6. And we're going to talk about worry, we're going to talk about anxiety. And we're going to talk about Jesus speaking into those things that impact our heart. Real things that probably on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, somehow affect us or touch our hearts. And where they don't, there's plenty of people around us that live in a culture where worry and anxiety drives actions, affects health, and affects people's hearts. So, so does the Lord have something to speak into that? Well, you bet he does. So we're going to be in Matthew 6. And I'm going to read to you from Matthew um, 6, a very familiar passage. And I'm going to read from <coughs> verse 25 to verse uh, 33, 34 of Matthew 6. So I'm going to read in the New King James for, for those that are following on Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you can, can by worrying, can add a one, one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for the Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. <coughs> Father, we pray that you'd lead us, you'd teach us, you'd give us understanding of your word, and you just you'd minister to our hearts in a real place. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, well... In Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking, and what he says is actually connected to what he's just said. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And if you look in, and he's going to talk about three things before he gets this passage. He's going to talk about money and treasure. He's going to talk about light, your eye being focused on the right thing. And he's going to talk about masters and slaves. So you have a look at verse 19, and he says... Serve God, not money. Put your focus on God, not money. By verse 22 he says, whatever your eye looks at is what it's going to be full of. Focus on light, not on darkness. Again, he identifies one thing to be focused on. And then he talks about masters, kings and kingdoms in verse 24. Not so much about employers, but about slaves in those days. And he makes this point, you, you can't serve two masters. It, it's physically impossible to do it. So all the way through to this point, he's made a point about, you can kind of do one thing, but you can't do two things at once. Now as a man, I get this. I, I can do one thing, ask me to do two, it's a bridge too far simply a bridge too far. It really is. So I understand singular focus because I can't do two things at once. I can only barely walk and breathe at the same time. But, but okay, but he's making a point which is singularly important is that you can really only, and he does it with the eyes, he says you can only focus on one thing. Now if you ever tried to focus on two things at the same time, it gets really tricky. I asked the guys at the, at the, at the, at the retreat the other night, I said, I said, look, I want you to focus on that, and I want you to focus on that at the same time. And you should have seen the eyes trying to do this. <laughs> and blood vessels getting bigger in necks as people try to do it. You can't do it. You know, if you're running forward, chasing towards a goal and trying to look back, you can't look where you're going. And bad things usually happen. So Jesus is talking about, you can really focus on one thing. One thing can be the priority, and other things have to take a secondary role to that priority. So in that, he then starts to talk about focus, having the correct one, not being distracted, and he actually talks about worry. So in these ten verses, worry is the key word in the entire section. He mentions it over six times in these verses. And what he, what, he, what he does is he brings a privilege to the believer. 
the privilege of not being dominated by worry or anxiety. That's an extraordinary privilege for the believer. And a real one. This isn't just theology. This is reality for the believer. You know, we sing about Jesus being raised from the dead. And we know those are not words. But you let the reality of that, that, that slip into your heart. And it's like rocket fuel. Mm. I know a man who was once was dead, but is now alive and forever lives. Yeah. Do you know how many people can say that? Mm. That's a limited number of people that can say that. These are not just words. They are an ever-present spiritual reality. And with that resurrection, Jesus not only redeemed a people, but he redeemed a people to an abundant life. And that word abundant literally means extraordinary. To extraordinary life. So in these ten or so verses, we're going to see God open up this idea of a privilege to the believer. You know, there are 366 times in the entirety of the scriptures where it says, do not fear or do not worry. Spurgeon called it the forget-me-nots that peep out from every verse of scripture. 366 times, one for every day of the year and the leap year as well. In this passage, he's going to give us four direct commands. Well, he's going to tell us it's good advice, but it's not just advice. He's going to tell us, you have to do this. These are commands, four commands, and he's going to use two words to look or see, to explain something. So we're going to take about, I don't know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and look at these four commands, these four commands, and these two words to see. And it all relates to the privilege of the believer to live not dominated by anxiety or worry. So he begins straight by saying, having just said, don't serve wealth, have the right treasure, have the right focus, serve the right master, he says, therefore I say to you, this is the application, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, or what you put on. It's not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. This is the first command, he says, do not worry. This is a continual command. It's not to say it once, it relates to all the time, don't worry. Now, I don't know about you, but when people say that to me, Oh, don't worry. I just want to hit them with a spade. <laughs> because while I appreciate the spirit of it, he really doesn't help me telling me not to do it. Do you find that? Or is it just me that has that mentality that thinks, I'm going to hit that person with a spade. Because sometimes telling me stuff like that doesn't help me. Even though I kind of know, oh, yeah, yeah, it's true. That isn't helping. We are often swayed by our distraction or by our cares. 
This word is used 19 times in the New Testament. It's often called worry or anxiety. The root Greek word is really interesting. It means to be pulled in two different directions. Now, doesn't that describe worry or anxiety? To be pulled in two different directions. I want to think about this, but what if this? I want to think about this, but what if this? And it doesn't work, does it? If anybody's ever tried to pull you in two different directions, generally it does not work. And it doesn't end with a healthy outcome. And especially when it's your heart, it's terrible. You know, I, I was sitting there watching, sorry, I've got to do the old rugby analogy. I was sitting there watching England versus New Zealand in the World Cup semi-final. Was I torn? To some degree, but not a great deal. But you get that sense of, ah. That's the description of what worry means. It means to be pulled in different directions. First command is, don't be. Now, because he's just said, put your focus on God, don't put your focus on wealth, don't put your focus on, put your focus on just one master, he's going to talk about some really important practical things. He's going to talk about what you wear, what you eat, what you drink. And it can't, it, it literally can't get more down to earth than that, can it? That was a question. <laughs> you are there. Great. Fantastic. You are still alive. Wonderful. Um, you know, that's basically it. As a man, I think about food probably at least 300 times a day. <laughs> And when I'm sleeping as well, probably. It, 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 they're such central, the important things. They're not heady things in that sense. They're, they're like, I need to do this to live, is the very base element of this. It's so central to everyday life. I mean, how many people are already thinking about lunch? <laughs> okay, now how many people have said are you thinking about lunch and you're thinking about lunch? They're <laughs> uh, liars. <laughs> all people out there, yeah, you do, don't you? I mean, I've been in Bible school now for 22 years, so I'm on the very long graduation program. Might eventually get out of it to be released. I live in an institution, you know. Um, and I've discovered over years, very scientifically, that the, the girls at Bible school only have two questions, right? What's God's will for my life and who we're gonna marry? <laughs> basically my entire counseling structure the last 22 years is, what's God's will for my life and who we're gonna marry? Well, let me tell you. Um, the guys have three. Yeah, it's very rare that the guy is actually winning something. They've got three. <laughs> and that's like, what's God's will for my life? Who am I going to marry? When do we eat? <laughs> and I found, with great wisdom, that if I get them to think about the third one, they don't worry about the first two. <laughs> you see, it's so central to our thinking that Jesus is going to say, okay, well, if I'm going to follow you, I, I've got to learn, I've got to eat, I've got to feed my family, I've got to do all these things, I've got to wear clothes, and we're all up for that, you know? Very central down-to-earth things. So he now raises that and says, don't worry about these things. He talks about life, right? Literally, your own well-being. He talks about eating, what you might eat. He talks about what you might drink, what you might wear. And he makes this point, is not life more important than these things? And he's talking about the priority of living a life 
Isn't your life, your soul, your whole well-being more important than what's for dinner? He's going to use two illustrations to help people understand it. Because he's not going to leave us in this place where he says, don't do it. <clears throat> and then leave us frustrated with the why or the how. Because that's the problem when people say, don't worry, I get that, but that's not helping. Jesus doesn't do that. He's going to give us two illustrations, both involve looking. Read with me. See what he says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into pots, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more value than you? Which of you can live well and can add one cubit to his stature? On two occasions he's going to say, look or see. The second command is here is look. And the word that he uses in the Greek is to look at this intently. Have a really close look at this. There's things for you to see. He talks about the birds. Now he says, they don't sow. He uses words of hard work. Have you ever seen a bird doing hard work? No, they steal things from other people. And they're not better about that at all. You have a garden, you have to cover it up with things because the birds steal things. They don't do hard work. He says, he uses work like hard work or they don't sow or reap. Sowing is a really hard thing to do. In those days, it was people going into the field, having plowed the field, walking in the sun, throwing grain. And the birds are just going to steal it, and everybody hates the birds. You know? They don't work hard. But look what it says. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he poses a question, which is, challenges some phrases. If God will feed the birds, are they more important than us? Now immediately the response is, well, well no, no they're not. But we very rarely let that truth sink into our hearts. <clears throat> we see God's provision around us, and yet we lose sight of the fact that he places a value on us that is an extraordinary value. If God gave the most important thing he could ever give, that which he loves more than anything, for you and I, when as sinful man we were enemies of God, do you think he's not going to provide for our needs in other areas? When you kind of phrase it like that, you kind of think, it's pretty dumb to think that he won't. If you read, and you want to see that verse that says that, Put your, keep your finger in Matthew and turn to Romans with me. And you haven't quite got there because you're in Romans 6. Have you just finished 6? You're in 7? Yeah. yeah. You're going to get to 8. That's math for you. That's great <laughs> math for you. You're actually going to get to 8. And in Romans 8.32, God says this. Well, Paul says this, and the Lord speaks to us through this. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? God has demonstrated the degree of his love to us and the value that we have by giving that which was most dear to his heart and freely giving. 
the writer in Matthew makes a point. He says, look, you know, the birds don't do work hard. They, they haven't got their focus on, I've got to sow, I've got to reap, I've got to gather in the barns. And yet, God feeds them. And the question Paul shows that we have a superior value. Then he makes another point, which is, is, is so helpful. You know, if you are going to worry, you're going to have anxiety. Is it going to help? Look at the point he makes. He says that, he says, which of you by worrying can have one cubic to his stature? Now, this word for stature doesn't mean height. It means length of age. It means length in terms of age, not just height. So, you know, it's not the idea of, I worry, I grow a bit. It, it, it's the idea that by worrying, am I going to add any length to my life? No. And, and the likelihood is it's going to be the complete opposite, isn't it? The likelihood is it's going to actually, like, you know, so one is, it's dumb anyway. That's kind of the biblical short mark of Worrying's dumb, because it actually isn't going to happen. The second illustration, again, requires us to look. In verse 28 it says, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you that even someone in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more clothe you, or you of little faith? He says, consider the lilies of the valley. It's another word for look. And by the way, this is the third command. You need to look. Now this is a different word. Because it means to look that you might learn something. Now, I, I'm, I'm a kind of musician guy. I, I, I'm no use of construction or anything like that at all. Completely useless. My dad was a perfectionist, never let me do anything. So consequently, I can't even put a shelf up. You know, I'm not even sure which, which side of the hammer to use. Right, another's a rubber end, another one isn't. So I have no idea at all. So, YouTube is my friend. I mean, we know it's terrible, but it's also great. So, if I want to know how to do something, some poor sad soul somewhere in the world has made a video about how to do it. <laughs> and at that moment in time, despite thinking they're probably very sad, I am so grateful that they did. Because I can look at, how do I wire this particular guitar? How do I wire a blender pot modification on a Strat? Let's see, it's really sad. This is really sad stuff. This is really deep down the rabbit hole, that is. You know, but there's a video, and I can watch how to do it and run it. And by watching it intently, I learn something. And hopefully, not blow myself up. And at the end of the day, get something that works. That's the word he uses. He says YouTube it. He says consider the lilies of the valley. And by looking at them, learn something. They don't toil. He uses the word for toil or hard work. It was used in a secular sense for people taking a beating. Something that was so hard they'd felt like they'd gone through 12 rounds and not ended up with a draw. Thank you. At least two or three people in the room. Thank you for that. Um, and it says they don't spin. They don't toil. They don't work. I was watching a, um, I was watching a, a documentary on one of the, the, the. It was one of the, the. They were making one of the um, 
Adidas were making a jersey for the next World Cup for the All Blacks. And, and it, was, it was a seven-year process to produce this jersey. Insane. They started off with material from NASA, and then it was digitally woven. I have no idea what that means. It sounds ever so cool, but I don't have no idea what that even means. And they, they, they tested it to break the fabric, and they put it on a machine, and it broke the machine that would tear the fabric. And after seven years, they produced a thing that was black, that people wear. That's hard work, that's toiling, to produce a garment that is really about running around a field and moving a bag of wind a certain amount of distance. That's toiling. Matthew says, look and learn. The beautiful flowers that we see, many growing naturally, they didn't come about by a seven-year process involving NASA. They don't spin, they don't toil. And you know what, even Solomon, probably the world's richest man at that point in time, the world's wisest man probably at that point in time, didn't look that good, didn't look better than they do. Look how fragile the flowers are. Look how free of care they are. Look how fine they are. They're a testimony to God's providential love and care. And yet, they're taken and maybe a day or two after their, their beauty's gone, they're thrown in the fire. And the writer makes a challenging question. And he does it in verse 30. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much clothe you? O ye of little faith. Interesting statement, O ye of little faith. You see, the enemy of God will seek to always remove God from the situation. You see, whether it's your circumstances, your finances, your health, the following of rugby teams or whatever, whenever God's in a situation, there is hope. Because God is hope and he brings hope. And he is unstoppable in the hope that he brings. And the enemy of God will always seek to remove God from a situation. And any situation in which you don't see it through the lens or the light of the presence of God will be by definition hopeless. <coughs> but wherever the Lord is, there is and in the Bible, hope's used in a very unique way. In the New Testament, it's the word elpis. It means to have an expectation of good and great things. That's what happens when God's in a situation. Expectations turn good and great. And peace reigns. There are three times in the New Testament when Jesus said, O ye of little faith, the first one's in Matthew 8, 26, where they were in the boat and the winds and the waves were terrifying them. Talk about a very present experience of, I'm going to die. That concentrates your mind and bladder, doesn't it? 
faced with that sort of situation. And, what, and Jesus calmed the waves and the wind. The very things that caused them distress and anxiety were under his feet. The second time the faith is used is in Luke, or little, little faith is used in, is in Luke 14, 31, where Peter's on the water, walking on the water, and he sinks. And his doubt comes to the fore, his anxiety, his worry, and Jesus says, oh, you little faith. The third time in Matthew 16, 8, is when it was the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000. And God met their physical needs. He rescued them in the storm from the water that would have done damage to them. He rescued Peter individually in the storm and in the waves. And he physically provided food for them. This is, this is real core practical things. And no, the rebuke isn't no faith, but little faith. And it's actually a question. Oh, ye of little faith? It's not a statement, it's a question. It's asking the question that says, really? The God who saved us, given his life for us, the one who created the very ground upon which we work, or gave himself for us, set us free, do we really think that he's not gonna care for us? if we make him the priority focus of our lives. Oh, ye of little faith. Is that how we really think? There's always a need and desire for us to grow in trust. Something that God seeks from our heart is dependency and trust. A verse we love and I love is, is, is one that you'll find in many places. It says, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. And God will direct your paths. And we love that verse. I love it verse. But if you want to notice something in there, very subtle, it removes trust from the realm of the mind to the realm of the heart. Trust in the Lord with all your and lean not on your Thank you, Jim. Jim, I'm loving you, man. Thank you so much for being part of this. Right? It removes it from the, the realm of the mind. What if, what if, what if? Oh, no, this is not going to happen. To the heart that says, my God is able. I know, I am persuaded that whatever I have committed to me is able to keep against that thing. He is able. Aslan's not a tame lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he then, look at the next verse, he says, Oh, ye of little faith, are you really of little faith? So he says, therefore, do not worry. Now, the Greek actually says this, So, let's not worry. Mm -hmm. Let's not worry. What we eat and we shall drink and what we shall wear. For all these things the Gentiles seek, and your Father knows that you need. <coughs> God knows. God knows that we need these things. You know? And we know that the people around us make them the priority of life. 
says God knows. There are two words in the Greek for know. One deals with experience and one with, deals with absolutely knowing perfectly everything. When it says God knows, he uses the term that says God knows everything. Perfectly and completely. He knows. And he's always been aware. It's actually a past tense. God has always known what you need. He then gives us the fourth command. And it's a command which is in contrast to everything else. It says, don't worry. Don't make this the focus. What you eat, what you drink, or what you wear. Worrying about those things it isn't going to enhance your life. It's going to detract from your life. And God knows you need these things. And he tells us, don't worry, and just leaves us there. He tells us why we shouldn't worry. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies of the valley. But then he gives us a fourth command. And this is where we come to a close. He says, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The fourth command says, but you seek. It's a command. Seek. It means to pursue. It means to pursue. I'm going to give this to you. No, it's good. Don't worry about it. Nobody else is listening anyway. There you go. It's not being touched. We're good. All right. You go with that. And I have other giveaways too, if necessary. I've got an Alan Key and a Nerf thing. We removed the saw earlier. That's good to go. Okay. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God. This word for seek means to pursue. It means to chase down like a rabid dog. Or a raging bull. It means to chase down, to pursue. It is continual, not singular. Continually pursue the Lord. It's used 119 <coughs> times of the New Testament in the New Testament. And on nearly every occasion it's used of God seeking man, not man seeking God. So if you want a picture of what it means to seek something. Think of how your saviour has sought you out. He turns that around and says, but you, now you seek. Implication is, it involves two things. Seeking involves two things. Time and effort. We have the privilege of not being ruled by anxiety or worry. We've been given three commands so far about how not to let that happen. But he says, make this your priority and focus. Seek, pursue me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God is righteous. And he says, seek first. He makes it a priority before anything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not mine, but his. It's interesting. 
There's only two other occasions where this word first is used in the same way, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's when he says, go and be reconciled first of all to a brother before you worship, in Matthew 5. And he says, before you correct somebody else, take the big beam out of your eye before you get the spark out of their eye. It deals with not postponing things. Isn't that a word sometimes? Have any of us postponers and procrastinators? I, I have some, I have assignments I have to mark back at the Bible College. Loads of them. And I'm pretending I don't have to do it. But it's not working. Priority here deals with not postponing something. It says, seek first. Kingdom of God is righteousness. You see, sometimes we argue, yeah, when I've done this, then I'll seek first. When I've done this, then I'll seek first. There's a wonderful proverb that I, that, 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 that I love and it, and, and, it, and it, it, it makes so much sense in New Zealand. It might not make sense here, I don't know, but it says, he who looks to the wind never soars. Right? And it, and, it, and it deals with the idea of, if you're constantly waiting for perfect circumstances, you never do it. Now, in, in, in New Zealand, you wash your clothes and you want to hang them outside to dry. You look at the sky and you go, it's blue, it's New Zealand. In four minutes, it will be snowing. <laughs> but maybe it won't. But maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Maybe it will. Will it? I don't know. What happens? You don't do anything. Because you're waiting for perfect conditions to manifest themselves. And the weather in New Zealand is not like that. Now your weather never seems to change. You probably hang things out all the time. But you, you probably have electricity and have washing and drying machines. We don't. You see, that first deals with don't postpone things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then there's a promise, isn't there? And all these things will be added to you. What's that? Your food, where you get to wear, where you get to drink, all those things. It's a result of seeking God first. See, God's economy is different. You put him first on those things and God will meet those needs. How does it work? No idea. I, I can't give you a mechanism by which God does that stuff. But he does. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Interesting, isn't it? You know, we start by saying the fear of the future and the regret of the past are the twin enemies of the soul. You see, you can't live in the past. It damages you. You can't live in the future because you're not there. And what does the writer say? Don't worry about then. In the present right now, seek first the kingdom of God. And don't be ruled by worry or anxiousness. The purpose here is not theology. The purpose here is to set men and women who are disciples of Christ free from worry and anxiety that would rule them. <coughs> and to give us a good reason not to worry. And it's eminently attainable. Why? Because God commands us to do it. Be people of faith and faith in God. 
Worry robs us of faith and works against it. Seek first the Father and his righteousness. Seek him first. And we have a promise that we live that in our lives. Right, I'm going to ask Steve to sort of come back and do something. But, um, I, I, I'm kind of... I just don't believe in teaching this stuff without response. Because, to be honest, everything we said about the work of the cross and God being raised and, and is about life-changing dynamic. And so, Steve's just going to lead us in some worship, but before he does that, and then he's, gonna, he's got the ball, he's going to close the service and do whatever, I don't know. He's going to do something. Good. There you go. Now he knows. Um, but what I want to do is, is, if this is you, where worry rules and anxiety rules, and if God's speaking into your heart and spoken to your heart about these things, I'm, I'm going to ask you to respond to this. And just while Steve plays something sort of quietly, um, I'm going to say, if this is you, I'd like you to stand. And then I want to pray for you. Right? Now, why ask you to stand? Well, here's the thing is when you recognize, Lord, this is me. Can God do this to you when you're sitting in your seat? Absolutely, no problem at all. But there's a point in which you kind of go, this is me, Lord, I'm making a demonstration that this is where I am, and this is what I believe, and this is what I want. So just as we close the service, just give a few minutes to this before Steve leads us in worship, is, is if this is you, and you need to respond to this, I'm just asking that you stand. Not for me or for anybody else, but I'm just asking that you stand. And I want to pray for you. Because wherever Messiah is, this is what Messiah does. He breaks chains, he sets people free, he gives sight to the blind, he proclaims the gospel to the poor, and he proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord. And if this is you, the Lord wants to minister to your heart. So please, if this is you, please stand.